Well, amen, and it is really good to be with you on this first Sunday of Advent. Glad you're joining us here or online, wherever you're joining us, glad you're here. Um, we thought, hey, it feels like we should have some fun this year for Advent, and uh, I don't know about you, I could use some fun in my life. And so the team has been working hard to plan all sorts of stuff. I'm so excited about this. I mean, ugly sweater day at church. Why haven't we done that before? Right? It's going to be amazing. And uh, I know when you think of fun, what most of you think of is a new sermon series. So that's my contribution today. I'm going to kick that off. Uh, I want to start this sermon series with a question for you. Have you ever had something in your life that you thought was perfectly normal? And then you met other humans and told them about it and discovered, actually, it's quite weird, this thing that I do. It's really unusual. I didn't realize that until I met normal people. I think we have a lot of this stuff over the holidays. I was recently talking to a friend, and she told me something, and I was like, I just didn't believe her. I had to go online and prove it to myself. This is actually a thing. What she told me was her family for like her whole life has been hiding a pickle in the Christmas tree. Do you do that? <laughs> I thought she was playing a joke on me until I looked it up. This is an actual thing and I don't want to like pick a fight. That's a little unusual. I, like, I'd never heard of that. Do you have stuff like this that you thought was normal until you met normal people? Um, when I was growing up, when, we, when it would come time to open presents, we would open presents one at a time from the youngest in the family to the oldest in the family like Jesus did it. <laughs> right? Then I married someone in her family. It is just whoever wants to open a present, go for it. And like chaos, like psychopaths. Uh, <laughs> And she was like, no, that's how normal people do it. And I'm like, that is not how normal people do it. What we do is how normal people do it. And we had to figure out, well, what's going to be normal for us? Here's what I want to suggest to us. I think this is true. This is universal truth for humans. Uh, sometimes we become so familiar with something that we don't realize just how weird and odd it really is. Have you experienced this? I think we all have this from time to time. Uh, what I want to suggest is this. I think that's what's happened to this Christmas story for us. Like even if you're, you didn't grow up going to church, you've probably heard the story enough that you just accept it. The virgin will be with child and give birth to a son? Of course. You know, yeah, there's no room for them in the inn, so let's send the really pregnant lady out to the barn to give birth naturally as you do, right? A bunch of random shepherds show up and they just say, can we see your baby? Of course, let's like make a little scene out of little figurines and we'll put it in our living room because that's the Christmas story, right? And we don't ever pause to think just how unusual this story is. It really is quite odd. Uh, we are so familiar with the story, I think we've overlooked some of the layers of meaning because we've heard it so many times. And if we do pause and say, well, that is a little bit odd, what we usually do is we just say, well, it's, it's miraculous. It was a miracle because in church, when we come across something weird in the Bible, that's what we do. We call it miraculous. It's not weird, it's miraculous. And uh, I, I just, I love this story so much, but I think it is really an unusual story and it tells us so much about God. And so what I want us to do this 
this Advent season is just take another look at the story, and we're going to focus specifically on some of the really odd, miraculous stuff in this story and see if we can't have our hearts and our minds reawakened to some of what God is doing here. It is the greatest story ever told, and it is the weirdest story ever told, I think. Uh, So I want us to see it with fresh eyes. Today we're going to dive in to the wise men, the magi. Now I know technically that happens after Christmas, but they're always in the manger scene, so we've got to talk about them. So we're going to start there, work our way back to the birth of Christ. Find your way to Matthew chapter 2. But first, let me set up this story with a little bit of history. It's going to get weird. Buckle up. Hang with me here. We've been studying the Minor Prophets. Uh, We got through the first section of Minor Prophets. There's 12 of them. The first section ends when the northern kingdom of Israel is destroyed, right, by the Assyrians. So that happens around 720 BC. About 100 to 150 years after that, in what is now eastern Iran, a man named Zoroaster was born and became a pagan priest and a mystic. Now, I don't know if that name rings a bell for you. Uh, He is famous because around 30 years old, he had a revelation of the one true God, a a God he called Ahura Mazda, which I'm probably not pronouncing it right, but you don't know how to pronounce it, so let's just go with that. Ahura Mazda, that was his name. Um, And he basically wrote this theology around this revelation that he had, that there was one true God locked in a battle with the evil spirit Angra Mianu, which again, I defy you to tell me that's not how you pronounce it. We all know that's how you pronounce it. He suggests this, that the outcome of that struggle between good and evil will ultimately be determined by the human race. So if we choose to do good, that helps the one true God, tilts the scales in his favor, and after our death, uh, like a heaven awaits us, right? And if we choose to do bad, that actually helps this evil spirit, and after our death, we go to kind of like this afterlife that basically resembles hell. So you can see there are some parallels to the religious concepts in ancient Judaism. This is notable because Zoroaster, what he has basically done here in 600 BC is create the only other pseudo-monotheistic religion in the ancient world, Zoroastrianism. Now, some speculate because of the similarities that maybe he was influenced by some of the concepts in the Hebrew scriptures or, or uh, you know, just he, Judaism in general. But regardless of whether or not he was influenced by Judaism, his ideas began to catch on pretty quickly. And Zoroastrianism became the official religion of an area which, which is now modern-day Uzbekistan. Um, I know you're saying, Jonathan, what does this have to do with anything? And what does it have to do with the people of God and the biblical narrative? Here's where it connects. The Persian Empire conquers this area where Zoroaster and his theology of Zoroastrianism had had kind of taken root. And so Zoroastrians had to find their way in the Persian religious system. Now, one of the rulers of Persia was a man named Cyrus the Great. You may remember Cyrus the Great. He was the one who helps Ezra return to Jerusalem and start rebuilding the temple. Cyrus the Great was very antagonistic to Zoroastrianism, and so he kind of bans it and forces everyone to worship the pagan gods. Now, he had a son. His son's name is Darius. Uh, he becomes emperor, and one, uh, what I think is probably an act of rebellion against his father, he converts to Zoroastrianism. 
Now, Darius is the emperor who helps Nehemiah come back to Jerusalem and finances the building of the wall around Jerusalem again. And so there's this moment in time uh, where Dari, under Darius, Zoroastrianism gets favored status, and it is rubbing shoulders with the Hebrews in the capital of the Persian Empire. Here's the timeline. Hang with me. Northern kingdom destroyed by the Assyrians. Zoroastrianism becomes a thing. The southern kingdom gets hauled off into exile by the Babylonians. The Persians take over. And that is the moment where the only two ancient monotheistic religions in the world were actually interacting with each other. Then the Persian Empire uh, allows the Hebrews to return and rebuild. And that's kind of where the Old Testament ends. You with me so far? I'm, I think, come on, it's weirder than you thought it was going to be, right? Okay, hang with me. In the next 400 years, there's no biblical scriptures written. And Judaism begins to thrive religiously in Palestine. One of the uh, advantages that Judaism has always had is the Hebrew scriptures, right? It gives you a tactical advantage over the pagan religions, which were very loosely organized and often didn't have scriptures of their own. It also didn't hurt that Judaism had like the real God on their side. That helps in a religious competition. Um, but Zoroastrianism, on the other hand, kind of struggles and starts to stumble within the Persian Empire and eventually becomes consumed within the paganism in the East and almost disappears until a group of Persian astrologers, uh, the Greeks called them the Chaldeans, uh, they convert as a group to Zoroastrianism. Now their job, their day job, was to manage all the pagan temples in the capital of Persia. But they began to believe in this concept of a supreme God who had a plan for people and wanted us all to be good. Well, that's kind of the last bastion of Zoroastrianism on earth. But they also began to gain this reputation as these people who were able to tell the future. They could discern signs and omens and stuff like that. So right before Jesus is born, uh, outside of kind of the robust worship of the God of Israel, which was happening in Palestine, and then this small little sect of Zoroastrians, the rest of the world would be very polytheistic and pagan. Rome was the superpower of the day. They'd conquered everything. The Romans loved religion. They thought the more religion, the better. And so they really encouraged religious expression. Um, the Roman gods, they, they don't think about like our God when you think about the Roman gods. The Roman gods were more like our concept of superheroes, right? They're basically humans, but they have some sort of special power, or maybe they're immortal or something like that. And so in the Roman system of religion, the, the whole goal was to get one of these super powerful human beings on your side so they would help you. There's not a lot of religious loyalty within the Roman religion system, and it was all deeply politicized. Now, we have to acknowledge this. We have grown up and lived our lives in an era that is, we've been comfortably monotheistic for a few hundred years. Um, so it, it's lost on us, this truth. Just how weird on earth the Hebrew worship of God and these Zoroastrians would have been. Outside of those two areas, the idea that there was only one God would have been like unheard of and viewed with a lot of hostility. So with that background, let's read this story. Story we're familiar with. Just see if you notice anything new. Verse 1 of Matthew chapter 2. 
Matthew writes, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, during the time of King Herod, magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, where's the one who's been born king of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When King Herod heard this, he was disturbed and all Jerusalem with him. How many times have you read that and not really stopped to ponder, who are these guys? Or maybe the better question is not who are these guys, but why in the world would Herod, very secure on his throne, be disturbed by this? Why would this shake him so much? Well, it bothered him because these guys were the famous Chaldeans. That's who they were. They were these world-renowned Zoroastrian priests known for telling the future. And so they show up, and Herod assumes, man, if these guys say something is happening in my neck of the woods, then it's probably happening. We all know these guys tell the future. Now, to clarify, there's a few Herods in the Bible. This is Herod the Great, the first Herod. Um, so he's a man who has deep ties to Rome, spent a lot of time in Rome, was handpicked by the Romans uh, to rule in, in the area of Israel. The Jewish people really thought of him as more Roman than Hebrew. They didn't care for him much. But uh, it, I say that just so that we can note, Herod's not a monotheist at all, but he would have absolutely seen the significance of the only two groups that suggest there's only one God, showing up at the same moment in time, right? Showing up and saying, hey, there's something happening in your kingdom, and it freaks him out enough that he puts this plan in place. We're going to start in verse 3 again, and listen to his plan. By the way, do you remember, uh, was it two weeks ago, we were in Micah chapter 5, this prophecy about Jesus? Remember that. Verse 3, when King Herod heard this, he was disturbed, and all Jerusalem with him. When he called together all the people's chief priests and teachers of the law, he asked them where the Messiah was to be born. In Bethlehem in Judea, they replied, for this is what the prophet has written. But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means the least among the rulers of Judah, for out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people, Israel. That's Micah 5, right? We just read that two weeks ago. Do you remember what comes next? The next verse is about how Jesus is going to raise up shepherds and commanders to overthrow the invading army. So this is like an intense prophecy that they recite to Herod. That's why he's so freaked out. These Zoroastrian astrologers show up. Then the, uh, the teachers of the law quote this Micah 5 thing, and suddenly Herod's looking over his shoulder. What is about to happen? What's really fascinating to me um, is you think about the messianic secret of who Jesus was in this moment in time, right? When the Magi show up, if you list the people who know that Jesus is sent from God, you have like Mary and Joseph, they, they obviously knew. You have a few people in their extended family who knew. You have these Zoroastrian astrologers, they knew. You have these shepherds, they knew. And you have Herod, who actually thinks, man, this is a thing, I need to put a stop to it. Here's what he does. Verse 7. Then Herod called the Magi secretly and found out from them the exact time the star had appeared. He sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search carefully for the child. As soon as you find him, report to me so that I too may go and worship him. 
Verse 9, after they had heard the king, they went on their way, and the star they had seen when it rose went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were overjoyed. On coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary, and they bowed down and worshipped him. Then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their country by another route. Um, my favorite, one of my favorite Christmas dad jokes of all time is that after the Magi gave Jesus these gifts on Christmas morning or whenever they did it, uh, they kind of leaned in and said, hey, Jesus, just so we're clear, these gifts are also for your birthday. <laughs> if you're born around Christmas, that you feel that, but in, in, everyone else, anyway. Some people told me that joke wouldn't work, Cindy. So joking aside, uh, you know how the story goes. It gets pretty ugly from there. The Magi leave. Herod realizes, hey, I've been duped. So he issues this order to murder all the males under two in the area. Mary and Joseph warned in a dream. They flee to Egypt. They probably finance that trip with the gifts that the Magi gave them. What do we make of all this? It's odd. It's weirder than you thought, right? It's weird. It's unusual. It's certainly miraculous. Let me start with this question. Why did Matthew include this? Why did he put this story about the Magi in there? I mean, aside from the obvious that it happened, why would he include this? Now, there's a lot of stuff in Jesus' early life that certainly happened but wasn't included. I've always wondered who helps Mary deliver Jesus feels like a story that I would include. Uh, Probably wasn't Joseph. Probably didn't do it by herself. Probably someone showed up to help bring the Messiah of the world, uh, you know, help it deliver him. Uh, What's the word? Deliver him. Thank you. I would have loved to hear that story, but Matthew's like, that's not important. But this story is important enough to him to include. Why does he do that? I want to suggest a couple of reasons. Um, The first is is simply this. Matthew is highlighting the fact that Jewish leaders didn't receive Jesus while these pagan astrologers did. Matthew is likely writing to a Jewish audience. Uh, This is a major theme of his gospel is that God's people didn't receive the Christ, but others did who were not part of God's people. If I could restate that theme a little, I think it's really instructive for us because what he's saying is this, those best positioned to know what God is doing totally missed it. Those best positioned to know what God is doing totally missed it. We can look at this and we can laugh at those silly religious leaders who just miss it all the time. But I think if we're honest, we have to be sobered by this fact that we are not so far above it that it never happens to us. Sometimes we're so familiar with the things of God, we're so sure God's going to work this way that we discount maybe the unusual way that he works in our life the unusual thing that he's speaking to us that we maybe didn't want to hear or didn't expect to hear. That's the problem with Christmas sometimes. We've lived with these stories for so long that we miss all sorts of things that are happening in these stories. But I think that's the problem with faith in general. Sometimes in our familiarity with God, we miss the things that he tries to do in our life when they don't line up with our expectations. 
I think that becomes especially true if we isolate ourselves in the subculture of Christianity. Um, I think Matthew might be making that point. I think part of what he's teaching us is maybe we should make some space in our lives for pagan astrologers. Don't freak out. I'm not endorsing paganism or astrology. I'm an Aries. I would never do that. <laughs> My wife said I shouldn't use that joke. This is true. Originally, I'm like, I'm a Taurus, right? And then we had to Google it, and I'm like, oh, no, I'm an Aries. So I'm not endorsing astrology, right, at all. I'm just observing this. Sometimes there is worth in talking to people outside of our tribe, right? Sometimes we can get so sequestered within a group, and that could be Christians or it could be like a group of friends or family or whatever it is, that we just miss the voice of God that is coming to us from outside. This is a recurring theme in our scriptures. God's people miss him, and someone on the way outside sees what God is doing and responds to it. That should create some humility within us as, as someone who follows God. We shouldn't let ourselves get too sequestered. Here's a second thing I think is happening here. This is why Matthew includes it. I think Matthew is pointing this out. Jesus is the savior of the whole world. Like that is an important message here, right? He was not just the Messiah to Israel. He was the Messiah for the whole world. He is the Messiah for the whole world. And I know like these Zoroastrian uh, uh, astrologers, they have atrocious theology. I mean, the list of things they were wrong about is incredibly long. But you know what they got right? The one thing, the most important thing, the Jesus thing. And you contrast that with the religious leaders. They had so much right. Like they understood so many things about God. They even knew where the Messiah was going to be born. They weren't looking for him, but they knew right where it was. That's the level of theological understanding they had about the coming Messiah. But they missed the most important thing, the Jesus thing. And so this is a story where pagan astrologers are saved and Israelite teachers are not. Because Jesus is the Savior of the whole world. He's not just the Savior of Israel. We are the people of God. I've referred to us that way a lot, especially as we're studying the minor prophets. I think it's appropriate for us to see ourselves as the people of God. Uh, but what that means, let's be clear, is that Jesus claims us. That does not mean that we somehow own Jesus or that people have to come through us to get to him. That's not what it means to be the people of God. The people of God are invited to play a role in reaching others with the gospel, but God is going to bypass us all the time to reach people, just like he did with the Magi. And frankly, I, like, aren't we glad for that fact? Like, isn't that like just so comforting and relieving that sometimes God will bypass his people to reach people directly? Because as a people group, I don't know if you've noticed this, but we believers, we can be a little bit fickle from time to time, right? We can get a little bit distracted with our own thing. And so part of the story, I think, should give us a little bit of confidence that God is going to pursue the lost world, whether we show up and do our job or not, because the teachers of Israel weren't doing their job. So he found some Zoroastrian astrologers to do it for them. I'm comforted by that, but it, it also challenges me. Um, I think about some of the tradition I was raised in. I, when I was in college, I went to an evangelism conference, uh, which is just a conference that encourages us 
to share the gospel of Jesus with people who don't know Jesus, which is a really important thing. We absolutely should do that. Um, while I was at the evangelism conference, I will never forget uh, this one moment. It was a dramatic reading meant to inspire us. It had the opposite effect for me. It was called Letters from Hell, um, and it is exactly what it sounds like. It was like a kind of imagining of letters that people who died and went to hell were writing to their Christian friends who never told them about Jesus. And I don't remember the specifics, but I will never forget the tone. It was stuff like, you know, hell is awful. You know, I'm suffering so much. Why didn't you ever tell me? Why didn't you ever tell me about Jesus? You know, I wish I was making that up. I I do want to say this to us. Uh, We need to be aware that as Christians, there is stuff like that out there, these ideas within our tribe. Um, That is really bad theology. It is deeply unbiblical for a variety of reasons. First and foremost, it absolutely cuts the sovereignty of God out of the equation. And if there is only one God and if we believe in him, then fundamental to that belief is that he is sovereign over all things, even salvation. And so it cuts the sovereignty of God out of the equation. But the other thing is it treats God like he is somehow a commodity that we possess and distribute as his people. And he absolutely is not a commodity. It objectifies God in that way. God distributes himself. Like God distributes himself through the person of the Holy Spirit who is fully God, but that is the way that God draws humans to himself. And it is God's joy to involve us in the distribution of himself. He invites us into that as we talked about last week. It is this worldwide project that is going on all around us at all times where God is redeeming people and everything else. And he invites us into that, and we find the purpose for our lives in that project. But the idea that it is somehow dependent on us That makes Jesus our Messiah, and he's not. He's the Messiah of the whole world, and God delights to partner with us to spread the gospel, but sometimes he is going to bypass us altogether and use, for example, a Zoroastrian system of astrology to reach people. So go figure that one out. I love this truth, this idea that God is the God of the whole world because we're so missional here at Popo Rock. We want to have an impact in the world, but without this truth, it is a soul-crushing burden to serve God. But when we trust that God is the God of the whole world and he doesn't need us to accomplish his mission, it lifts us and helps us find his, our purpose. Like this idea that our God would like fling stars in the sky so that one day he could like reach these Zoroastrian astrologers like is just beyond me. We just have to stop for a second in the story and appreciate the wildness of our God. Like, we can't stop his work. We can't even hope to contain his work, right? Like, like, he has plans upon plans upon plans to draw humans to himself. And that he would ever invite us into this wildness is just beyond me. I mean, he is truly the God of the whole world. And, and when we, as his people, are asleep at the wheel, he found Zoroastrian priests to inaugurate his son as king. Man, that's weird. 
That's beautiful. That's miraculous. As I was studying this, um, I was reminded of a story that's one of my favorites in the Old Testament. It's in Genesis 28. You can read it later. Um, I, I've never had occasion to preach on this, I don't think, but I love this story so much. It's commonly referred to as Jacob's Ladder. Uh, it's the story of one of the patriarchs of Israel, Jacob, whose name was also Israel. So uh, pretty, no, I, I feel it. It's, it's been a lot of nerdy history. Um, so one of the patriarchs of Israel, Jacob, uh, is traveling from one place to another. And the Bible says this about th this moment. When he reached a certain place, he stopped for the night because the sun had set. Taking one of the stones there, he put it under his head and lay down to sleep. And in Hebrew, the phrase that we translate a certain place in English uh, is, is like purposefully vague in the Hebrew language. Like it just means like just some random place, just from here to there, middle of nowhere, he just stops here, right? Nothing special about it. While he's asleep, he sees a vision. And the vision is of the staircase going up to heaven from earth. And angels are ascending and descending the staircase, busy about the work of the Lord, right? And in that moment, God makes this promise or really renews this promise to Jacob that he was going to be the father of a nation and that through this nation, God was going to bless and redeem the entire world. That is a promise that God fulfills on Christmas morning with the coming of Jesus. And it's this random story. It's not the main narrative. It's just kind of this affirmation of the promise that God has made all along. But what happens when Jacob wakes up is he has this declaration. He says, surely the Lord is in this place, and I was not aware of it. Wow, man, some of those Old Testament stories, they are just chock full of good theology. What the lesson is, is simply this. When you think you are just in some random place, when you think you are in the middle of nowhere, nothing happened, and I'm just, I'm just getting through these days, God is even in that place, and he is working all the time, all around you, because he's the God of the whole world. That's what Jacob forgot in that moment. That's what Herod was missing in that moment. That's what the religious teachers of the law were missing, even though they knew where the Messiah was going to be born. And that's what sometimes we miss in our familiarity with God. We stop seeing but then God sends a trio of Zoroastrian astrologers and they remind God's people what we should have known all along. He is there and he is working and our God doesn't need our permission or our attention or our systems and structures to accomplish his purposes. The presence of the Magi should wake us up. <clears throat> it should create a thirst in us to see his work. I once read a rabbi a theologian, um, and he, he was talking about the prohibition against building a, a, an image of God, making an idol of God. Um, he said, God does not forbid us from making a graven image or an idol of him because he is invisible. He forbids it because he is visible all around us, constantly at work. And he knows this 
that if we made an image of him, all of our focus would be on that image and we would miss seeing the myriad of ways God is present on earth. And we'd miss worship. I don't know if that's the reason, but I just think we have to acknowledge, just like God's people on that first Christmas, God can show up and we can totally miss it, totally be oblivious to it. And so I just want to start Advent by asking, is it possible that maybe we are missing God somewhere in our life in this moment? Or maybe it's looking back. You look on a moment of your life where it's like, man, I, I just felt so abandoned by God in that moment. Maybe that warrants another look. Have we missed him somehow? It's a wild story. 600 years in the making, this moment was. Written by a wild God who is always at work. What I want to say to us today is that same God is present in your life. Could we find this certain place? And just slow down and just think about, see if we can see maybe what it is that he's doing. As we close, I just want us to meditate on this question for a minute. Would you pray this with me? God of the whole world, are you present in my life in a way that I'm not aware of? God, would you make us aware, Lord? Make us aware.